On today's episode, we're doing something extra special and new in what will hopefully be a long and fairly sporadic series with my brother-in-law, Dan Hess, and myself, tentatively called Trading Ratings. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Like I said, I've got my brother-in-law, Dan Hess, on the show. And, you know, I did record this separately, so I apologize if there's a very jarring jump from this recording into our actual recording of the episode. That's, you know, just my bad. I forgot to record this when we did it, so... But just listen in, we've got some great new ideas, and I think we have a lot of great discussion, and I think it really went well, so obviously just give her a listen and and see what you think. Yeah, it's going to get real Single digits, yeah. Like, for for the D.C. area, it's going to get real real cold. It's going to be kind of cold for Michigan, uh, you know, by Michigan standards, but it's going to be real cold by D.C. standards. I I don't remember how it came up, but at work, I was talking with somebody like a group of people at this meeting and something came up about, you know, something, somebody looked up the weather and it defaulted to Celsius. And they were like, well, I don't know how they're like, I don't know what, you know, when Celsius meets Fahrenheit, but I'm never going to be able to tell what temperature it is based on Celsius. And I was like, well, they meet at negative 40 degrees because I found out the hard way that that's when they meet because I found out, when it was negative 40 degrees when I lived in the UP <laughs> and it was that bad that it was not even a wind chill. It was legitimately just negative 40 outside. It was fucking terrible. So I don't, I mean, as far as this, I I, I would love to, I mean, obviously we could talk about weather all day long, but um, <laughs> you know, I, when I got your email and you basically, I have this habit of reading emails and letting certain things stick out to me that are not like basically you had already addressed a concern I had in your original email and I didn't realize it. And then I responded to you and I was just reading back through our conversation this morning. And I realized that you had already talked about it. Like I was like really afraid because when we talked about doing this, you know, I I was initially worrisome about the whole concept of if this was going to be a separate podcast or if this was going to be, but you actually said in the first email that it was not going to be a separate podcast and it would just be a little offshoot type thing. But it was, I was just like worrying about the concept of having two separate podcasts because of all of the things that would, that would entail basically. I mean, it would, it would be so so much work to actually add a you know another podcast i'd have to have another rss feed i'd have to have new artwork different things like that i mean it would be troublesome honestly but um yeah i mean i guess if if you want to if you want to do your introduction and we can just find out what this podcast is all about and go from there yeah so a little bit of background um i think I recently was on a podcast you aired, a Christmas episode, Michelle and I were on it, and uh, 
So, so your podcast was in my brain as I was listening to Tom Petty a couple of weeks ago, I, as I am wont to do every now and then I kind of go through like the whole catalog of a particular artist I like, and I rank the albums in my head. And I somehow I think those two ideas sort of overlaid each other in my brain. And I thought, you know, what might be fun is to do a movie version of what's happening in my head right now with Brandon, where we kind of go through a retrospective subset of movies linked by, you know, a director or an actor or a character or a cinematic universe of some sort and kind of do like a short form, talk about each one, pros and cons, what we like, what we don't like, that kind of thing. Uh, and then kind of rack and stack rank, you know, the best to the worst kind of thing or the worst to the best. And as I started thinking about it more, a couple of opportunities and a couple of issues popped into my head about it. You know, on on the good side, it was like, you know, hey, this could be a fun way to sort of talk about like all of Steel, Steven Spielberg's movies, like in a, you know, a whole sort of one shot go through his career kind of thing. But then on the other hand, I thought that's like 50 fucking movies and that'll take, yeah. we'll spend all year watching movies to have a 60 minute conversation about it. That's not a very good return on uh, investment of time, so to speak. No. So, so as, as we had a few, after I broached the idea to you, uh, we had a few back and forths about, you know, well, what's the best way to tackle this where we could kind of go through a retrospective without turning it into work. And I think where we at least have initially settled on is, well, we'll just pick a few random movies each out of the catalog and talk about them. And that means that there are a bunch of probably good ones or classics or whatever that we might not talk about. Some crappy ones we will talk about because we want to talk about the good and the bad, just because it's a little more fun that way. And we'll see We'll see how that goes. Maybe we find that it uh, feels like there's something missing. Maybe we find that we can't fill enough time with that. I think we're both long-winded enough that we'll probably do just fine in that, in that right. regard. Um, but uh, so this is a first attempt to do what I sort of just described in a probably rambling way, but to basically pick a theme, pick, I think we settled on six movies each, and then go through a worst to best ranking. And we might have some of the same movies on our lists. We might uh, have some different ones. There's always the chance that we talk about the same six movies. There's the chance that we talk about 12 different movies, um, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, and so for our pilot episode here, we settled on a manageable topic, but yet that had enough variety to uh, perhaps lend itself to an interesting discussion. And that is the Coen brothers. So with that, uh, Brandon, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Coen brothers and why they're worth talking about? Before I get into that, I do want to apologize because there were there were times where my responses got a little foaming at the mouth ish and <laughs> I got a little too excited as I was like, wait, what are you talking about? We're not doing it like that. That can't be this way. Like I I, I just freaked the fuck out. So I, so I apologize for that. It was yes, it was a bit much. I, I there, don't know. There was definitely came over me. There was definitely one moment where you knocked me back in my chair a little bit as I read it, uh, and it, it was very clear to me that there was a particular movie that you absolutely wanted to talk about. <laughs> right. And I was like, <laughs> so, what, do you, what do you mean, no adaptations? This is bullshit. <laughs> anyway. So, I was yes. like, honestly, I just don't want to watch uh, Lady Killers or whatever it was. That <laughs> right. And so, I mean, that's that's one thing to make sure we point out. We do want to try, I mean... To some degree, we were trying to filter it down to a more manageable number, and I think it'll kind of vary based on which person, director, character, actor, whatever 
that we choose, it'll be a major difference between different episodes because we never know, you know, if, if somebody's got, if somebody's like Steven Spielberg, where they have over 30 movies to talk about, it might make more sense to whittle them down to a certain manageable number. But at the same time, sometimes we're just going to want to talk about too many different movies. And if we elect to have the scope be 40 movies, then that's the way it is, basically. I mean, some actors have 80 plus credits or 100 credits or whatever, and that's just something we're going to have to deal with as we come to it. As Dan mentioned, the topic for this episode will be the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan. And for a background, just, you know, the Coen brothers are a filmmaking duo that generally direct, produce, and write or adapt their movies, which span across multiple different genres, focusing mostly on crime thrillers, comedies, dramas, or often a mix of those three. For a little brief bio, they were born and raised in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. They developed an early interest in film through television and films like the works of Federico Fellini, and they also liked the Tarzan films as well as comedies by Jerry Lewis, Bob Hope, and Doris Day. I can honestly say that I've never seen anything by Bob Hope or Doris Day. I wouldn't know Bob Hope if I saw his face, I don't think, but I've heard about him for years. And the only movie I've ever seen by Jerry Lewis is The Nutty Professor, and not a fan. Was not a big fan of that movie. I didn't really care for it. I don't know if I'd watch other Jerry Lewis movies based on that. So yeah, um, significant relationships is one that we'll we'll talk about depending on the significance. It you know we're not just going to talk about their wife and kids if they're not relevant to bring up. But for them in particular, Joel is actually married to actress Frances McDormand, who stars in many of the Coen Brothers movies, and she's a terrific actress and she's really made a name for herself in a lot of dramatic roles. The years active. Uh, we have 1984 to the present. Their first major film was Blood Simple from 1984. And their most recent major film was technically Jerry Lee Lewis, Trouble in Mind from 2022. But that was actually only Ethan Cohen that did that one. So it was, it was kind of like, do we count that one or do we not count that one? But more more on that later on. <laughs> and the number of credits is all-encompassing would be, according to Wikipedia, 20 credits for them to date. And they've done a lot of different types of movies, and a lot of their movies are originals, and they really are not like a lot of other movies. Yeah, they're very unique, that's for sure. Oh, a definitely. unique style. And it's funny because they're not necessarily that complex always or it's like although they're original stories it's not like you've never ever heard of some of the concepts of their stories but the way they execute them or the way they tell a simple kidnapping story or something like that it's like it's not in a way you've ever seen it done before and it's pretty spectacular honestly i i really enjoy it yeah, and one of the one of the recurring themes that you're going to see, at least through my notes and my the, my picks, they seem to have like an almost uncanny mutant ability to develop characters in a way that like doesn't require tons of background. You just almost immediately get the character in a weirdly unique way. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, there's little moments and little 
one-liners that pepper their movies that stand out on their own like no other uh i think writer directors that that i can think of off the top of my head it's it's really yeah it's really enjoyable to watch their movies for that reason alone it is (laughs) just for the characters it's definitely because i mean i remember the first time i i saw a coen brothers movies i or a movie i was just floored by it like i just i was like why like this this doesn't seem like a movie I've ever seen before, even though it's got a lot of the elements of movies that I've seen before. And it's just the direction they take it in the way they, like you said, the the way they, they develop their characters or, you know, a lack thereof in character development. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing what they can do. You could almost say they like establish characters more than develop them, but the character ends up, you know, super fleshed out anyway. I don't know. It's hard to explain what's in my brain as I, as I'm thinking about, you know, characters like the dude from Big Lebowski or the police officer played by Francis McDormand in Fargo, things like that, where it's just like, it's the characters are so beyond unique and you don't even need their, their history to suddenly like feel like you, I don't know that it's, yeah, I, I don't know that it's that you know them so much as like, you know, you've never seen anyone quite like them before. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I don't know. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Okay. So we should probably have a way of determining who goes first and who goes second. I mean, I don't know if it's really got to be a big deal, but do you have any uh, ideas well, on that? So actually, before we get into that, it just occurred to me that I forgot to talk about our grading system, um, which oh, yeah. probably would have fit well into my original intro, but, uh, you know. We're, hey, we're shooting from the hip here. Right. So, exactly. So so the way that we're ranking these is so so I, I I like to play a lot of board games and and card games and things things like that. And one of the ways uh, that's very common in like YouTube videos and podcasts and blogs and things like that that they rank you know powerful characters or equipment or whatever you know, in, in some of these games is they rely on this Japanese grading system. I didn't realize that until recently when I was trying to figure out why they have an S tier and what the S stands for. But essentially, picture the American grading system on a scale of, you know, E to A, E being a fail and A being, you know, the top way of passing. But then they add what's called an S tier over the A, which would be like super duper, extra special, you know, beyond great sort of a tier. Um, I guess they felt that just, I don't know, A wasn't high enough for some of their overachievers or something. I don't know. The analogy I would try and make to a sports analogy would be like an A might be a franchise player, first team, all-star, best player on the team, but an S tier would be like Willie Mays or Tom Brady or LeBron James, like, you know, once in a generation, better than all of their peers kind of thing, way up there. Now, having said that, I would imagine that Based on the types of lists, if we do more of these that we'll do, we'll want to talk about people that we enjoy and that are worth talking about. So I would imagine most, if not all of our lists are going to have at least one S tier on it, but uh, that's not intended to to dilute the power of the S tier, so to speak, so much as to acknowledge that uh, I don't really want to talk about Tyler Perry movies, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the right. thing. We're picking actors, directors, characters that we like, so Generally speaking, we're going to have S tier yeah. rankings. You know, that's and, just fair and, enough. And on the same token, I, I would venture that, you know, with a few exceptions, maybe an E tier that we mm. that we start with might be better than someone else's C tier. You know, it's it's hard to not it's hard to to separate total subjectivity 
from this yeah. method, right? <laughs> like if if I really like I, I and I'm going to start off with with a movie that I'm giving an E, but I would have to admit that if I like line that up against, you know, your average made for TV Christmas movies, for example, it would be better than than most of those, right? <laughs> yeah, so. it's not it's not like a level <laughs> playing field. It's it's relative for sure. Right? It's just yeah. it's not yeah. What as far as um how we'll present this is our initial plans are to go from worst to best and work it out that way. And obviously, you know, the big thing with us is I I really pushed with Dan, you know, in my over the top emails about wanting to present this stuff and have neither Dan nor I know each other's movies or rankings so as to kind of add to the fun of it all with us, you know, finding out in real time about what movies, what picks, whatever, you know, it it just, it seemed like a more interesting way to do it. So we're going to see how that works. And obviously this is, as we've talked about, a kind of a testing the waters type episode where we're going to actually find out how things are, are really going to plan or play out as so to speak. Yeah. So I'll, I'll uh, I'm happy to go first if you want to hand it over to me. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. I'll, I'll take the, uh, the speaking stick. <sighs> there you go. All right. So, so my first one, the worst of the six that I picked to talk about uh, that I'm giving an E grade to is 2018's the ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, okay. This is an anthology of short stories set in the Wild West. That's my one sentence synop- synopsis of uh, the movie. It's just a bunch of little short stories. They have nothing to do with each other. Uh, I think there was five or six, I think six different little stories throughout the movie. I will give it one kudos, the title story, because of the six different stories, the first one is actually called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. The The story was, it was clever and amusing, kind of cute, kind of funny, but from there, it just sort of cascades downhill. And even the okay. performances of some of the the actors in it, and it is a star-studded cast. I mean, it starts starts off with Tim Blake Nelson, who you may recognize from another Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He plays Delmar. Um, he, okay. he pops up here and there. I think he was a bad guy in one of the uh, awful Final uh, Fantastic Four movies. It's got... You know, he's in, in one of the, the st- he's the star of one of the stories. He actually plays Buster Scruggs. Another one of the stories has James Franco and Steven Root. Yet another one stars Liam Neeson. The next one stars Tom Waits. The next one didn't star anyone I was overly familiar with, though I recognize a lot of the faces in it. Zoe Kazan. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Oh, a few well, people there. heard of her. And then the last one had like Brendan Gleeson and a few other people. But anyway, it's it's pretty star studded as the, the Coen brothers move on. They're one of those people who like people come to them to ask to be in their movies. I get the feeling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, definitely. Um, but honestly, other than like a few little nuggets here and there that were kind of amusing, this movie just to me, it was way more bad than good. So, you know, the, I mentioned the Liam Neeson story he he has his own little story it's like this totally boring pointless waste of talent like it starts off boring it remains boring it sort of ends boring and it goes nowhere and you're left thinking well there's 20 minutes i'll never get back the the tom waits story was like okay but it took way too long to get there same with the the fifth story with the rattlecough girl is what I, I call her. Again, takes way too long to feel like it develops into anything. And then there's like kind of an exciting payoff that then just ends on a real, real downer 
which usually I am a fan of a twist, but it just made me feel bad. The last story, the Brendan Gleason story, just seemed like a bunch of rambling. And honestly, I stopped paying attention and started doing something else halfway through it. And I don't even know how it ended or, or what it was ultimately about. Uh, the whole movie seemed sort of poorly edited, mostly too long. And I think it may have benefited from some connective tissue the way that you might see in a Pulp Fiction or other movies that seem to be sort of an ensemble cast of different little stories that weave together. There was really nothing that tied any of these together other than the fact that they all took place in the Old West. Um, oh, yeah, that's too bad. I mean, that'd be yeah. a good opportunity, honestly. Right. To- right. And in the end, I felt like it was kind of like it came off to me as like a cash grab using a bunch of little partially written story snippets and and big names. Like they got a, a Netflix deal to crank this thing out. They pulled a bunch of you know half written stories out of their sock drawer, strung them together produced it kind of well and then moved on. And, you know, maybe I'm I'm overly harsh on it because I legitimately remember being super excited for this back in 2018 when they were advertising this was going to be coming out. It was a new Coen Brothers movie. It had this awesome ensemble. It was in the Old West. It just looked like it was going to be super unique and special and whatever. And it was like, what the hell did I just watch? And four years later, I watched it for the first time again just for this podcast. And I found that it was even worse than I remembered. (laughs) Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, it is too bad because at face value, it sounds like a movie I'd want to watch, but I don't know why I, so let me ask you this. Is it a musical of some sort or is it not? Am I just, did I get that impression? So the first story, like it's a little 10 minute story starring Tim Blake Nelson as Buster Scruggs. That Mm -hmm. kind of is like, he's a balladeer slash uh, gunslinger. In fact, the song that they wrote for or that was written for the movie that he sings or his character sings was actually nominated for an Oscar that year for uh, uh, original song in a motion picture. And the song is really catchy. It's actually a really good song. Um, It's kind of a, you know, country, Western, bluegrassy kind of, you know, it has a very old West twang to it. And that's why I say like that story was actually kind of kind of clever and funny the way that it unfolds. It's got a good song in it. And then like a new balladeer gunslinger comes to town to like try and beat him finally. And that guy also is a balladeer <laughs> slash gunslinger, which is, you know, kind of a, a funny just juxtaposition. Um, right. But uh, but that like, seriously, if you were interested in watching it, I would say it's on Netflix. Watch that first 10, 15 minute story and then just turn it off. Uh, don't bother okay. with the rest of it. If Thanks. you're if you're really bored, watch the second story also. I would say that one's not overly terrible. Steven Root is really funny in it. James Franco does James Franco things in it. It's kind of kind of interesting. I f- I feel like they should have done more with that one. But then after that, it just like continues downhill and never really recovers, honestly. Yeah, and this is this is one of those ones that I have my personal feelings on you know if somebody's telling me a movie like you're saying it's you're rating it e which is only relative to coen brothers movies presumably but i'm guessing it's all in all not a very solid watch it's one of those ones where i'm just like i don't think i need to check this one out i was already like (laughs) reluctant about it i just kind of never really got around to actually watching it so should we so i i'm sorry i missed if did you give the ranking First and foremost, right after you said the title, is that how you did it? So so for this one I did, but I'd already, you know, kind of spoiled it when I mentioned that I had an E on this list and I was and we were starting from the worst. So <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, so so yeah, so I let the cat out of the bag on that one. And as you said, it 
you made a very good point there. And I actually wrote that down. The Coen brothers are better than this. Yeah. (laughs) Right. For the Coen brothers movie, I expected way more. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I, I saw that it was on Netflix and I, I I just remember, you know how Netflix annoyingly likes to play previews of movies when you're scrolling through because yeah, it drives me nuts. Oh yeah. It's apparently actually I should go into, cause I, I mean, I'm on your Netflix account. I should, Cause you can turn it off. You can actually make that go away. That's amazing. Yeah, you better settings. edit that out before they come after me. Oh no! I mean, it's actually a setting they have. Like they actually no, want you to I be mean, able to do the that. fact that you're on my Netflix account. Oh yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, they haven't brought the hammer down on that quite yet, but we're technically immediate family, so that is something. So I guess I can talk about my first movie. It's Inside Lewin Davis from 2013 starring Oscar Isaac and Carrie Mulligan. And it is a movie just basically about an independent musician that just has all these trials and tribulations in his life and things like that. And honestly, you know, it's just a drama and it really, the biggest thing I remember from watching this movie, I didn't rewatch it for this episode because I couldn't bring myself to do it. It's just, I remember there being a major plot point of him losing these people's cat and getting this cat back. And that was like a major pivotal thing in this story. And I was like, this isn't what I signed on for. I wanted something really interesting. You know, I'm used to the, the Coen brothers. They're, they're usually the ones that have these really interesting, intricate plots and things like that. And when I watched this movie, I found myself more bored than not. I, I didn't love the fact that they essentially kind of don't really give it much of a plot. They just kind of have it meander wherever it decides to. And I didn't really feel like there was any major connective storyline going together. It was just this really bland story. And I mean, Oscar Isaac is awesome in it. He does a great job, but it's also not Oscar Isaac usually is pretty good. Yeah, he's he's very solid, honestly. And I've seen him in a lot of movies. I'm a big fan of his in this particular movie. I don't know. It just it could have been one of those things where I wasn't in the mood for it, but I really don't think so. I mean, I don't even remember Carrie Mulligan, like how she's usually pretty good in what I've seen her in. She's only been in a few movies that I've watched, but she's She's pretty good. Always good. And uh, I should say the same thing in the few movies I've seen with her. I've enjoyed her. Yeah. And she, so, I mean, with this particular movie, you know, I didn't, I I had this struggle when Dan and I were talking about doing this concept. It was, it was a big struggle for me because we wanted to make sure we included bad movies and had these ones included in it. But it was, I, I had a really hard time with the concept of, okay, so I just saw this movie less than a year ago. I don't really remember it because I watch a lot of movies and unfortunately that's just the way it is. And I don't really want to go back and revisit this movie because I remember only one thing about the movie particularly other than the lost cat was that I wasn't a big fan of it. So it's like that makes it difficult for me to like, oh, yeah, let's go back and revisit this and spend two hours of our lives, you know, watching something that we know we probably won't enjoy. So I, I mean, I rated I rated this movie an E. And one tidbit that I found about this movie was that Joel Cohen remarked that the film doesn't really have a plot, and that concerned the Cohen brothers at one point, and that's why they <laughs> threw the cat in. 
<laughs> that's what he said about this movie's <laughs> plot. I mean, like that's ridiculous, you know? Right. Right. So, have you ever seen this one? Have, no, have I have it? not seen this. Uh, they lost me at uh, musical drama period film. I, I don't know why, but musicals don't excite me. Like, I can think of musicals that I like. I don't like dislike them by default. But my default setting on a musical is that I'm not particularly interested unless it's like a Disney cartoon. <laughs> I well, I'm the same way, except in that I would say by default I do not like musicals, but Musicals can win me over if they're good enough. Right. Because, right. I mean, for the most, but with this one, actually, if you read that it was a musical, if I recall correctly, it was not really a musical in the true sense of the word. It was, he's a musician and he does live performances throughout the movie. And so the music itself, I don't remember being particularly bad. It was really just the lack of plot that really dragged me down. So, I mean, but it's, so, I was going to say, do you, do you have a whole lot more? No, no, I don't have a whole that? ton more. Oh, hey, there's speaking of which I, I, uh, uh, your, your bit about the cat, uh, reminded me, I did have some trivia for that last one. Okay. Go for it. it it's the longest Coen brothers movie ever made by about six and a half days. Wow. <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> that was all I had worth, uh, <sighs> worth writing down. That's yeah, that's reasonable. So, I mean, yeah, what, what's, what's, uh, I guess, what's your next movie? That's the, so, <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. As, uh, Forrest Gump <laughs> right. <would say. laughs> I'm like, uh, we already kind of closed out on my movie, Dan, it's your turn. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> my next one that I wanted to talk about was blood simple. You had mentioned previously, that was their first major motion picture, 1984. And I gave this one a D. Did you no. give your grade on that last one? Was that an E? Uh, yes, it was an E. Okay. So I gave Blood Simple a D. Uh, this one, it's about a guy uh, who is double-crossed by a hitman that he hires to kill his wife and the employee of his that she's having an affair with. Uh, it stars it stars John Getz, who you might remember uh, as the lawyer father of Alicia Silverstone in Clueless. It stars yes. Frances McDormand, as mentioned previously, uh, who you may remember from almost everything the Coen brothers have ever made. Uh, and Pretty then much. it also stars Dan Hedaya. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, who is a person who I didn't immediately, uh, you know, think of like other stuff that he's been in, yet he's one of those people you've seen a hundred times and stuff. He almost always seems to play a sleazy, sweaty villain. And this movie is no different. He plays a sleazy, sweaty villain for sure. And this one's Kind of interesting. So I, I would say more interesting than the last one I talked about in the sense that even though I gave it a D, I feel kind of bad about it because I don't feel like it's a bad movie, but I didn't really enjoy it. And again, I felt like, you know, and maybe it should get a, a pass because it was their first movie. But overall, it just seemed to be really slow moving and dark and brooding and I don't know, it kind of bored me a little bit. Like I, I kept waiting for it to pick up a little bit and never really seemed to. On the upside, Frances McDormand, as always, is fantastic. She's likable as usual, despite playing a very unlikable character, in my opinion. And it had some good plot twists that were kind of interesting. But overall, and, you know, again, even with the, as I mentioned, Frances McDormand's character is not very likable. That was kind of one of my problems was that nobody in this movie is likable like no there's no one to root for and not in like a an always sunny in philadelphia way where it's hilarious and therefore it doesn't matter that they're all bad people that's kind of the point yeah. this one it's like 
at some point I felt like I was supposed to be rooting for Francis McDormand to like get away or whatever. But at the same time, I'm like, she's awful too. All these people are yeah. awful. They're cheating on each other, hiring each other to kill each other. Not to say that she deserves to be murdered for uh, cheating on her husband. I mean, that might be a little extreme, <laughs> but at yeah. the same time, I'm like, they've given me no reason to really root for her. You know what I mean? And that can um, be a really big problem in movies. I mean, if you're, if you don't have yeah. that person to, to connect with in any way, or you legitimately have issues with major characters, then that's, yeah, that's a big problem. Right. And like, and then, you know, at the end without giving too much away, I guess. Yeah. She, she gets away. So I guess that's a spoiler, but is that a good thing? I mean, like, they establish right at the beginning that she's cheating on her husband with one of his employees and they know that he's a jerk. I mean, they establish that like he's not a nice guy, but it also seems clear that he's like a dangerous, not nice guy, right? Like yeah, he right. runs this bar. He's clearly involved in illegal activity, you know, and, and the first time you see him, he's like talking to a private investigator that's like making an offer to kill them for him and He's strongly considering it. And then he shows up and like tries to, I, I don't know if his plan was to like beat her up or kill them or what he was going to do, but everything just kind of tumbles into chaos off the bat. And I think it kind of suffered too. As I said, it it's so dark and brooding that it makes it feel even slower than I think it kind of was. Anyway, I've got one highlight that Toots and the Maytals is on the soundtrack, uh, which you don't hear much in movies. And I love me some Toots and the Maytals. And I guess Frances McDormand, because she's always good. But it was overall, it was just, it was too slow. So I gave this one a D. Okay. There was one interesting bit of trivia, though, that I came across. And before I say it, I want to I wanted, uh, ask you, because this came off of IMDb, and I know that you uh, like to use that for some of the little trivia things, too. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the source of these is and how true they necessarily are? I would say they're less reliable than <laughs> Wikipedia in terms of actual <laughs> validity. Like, I... I have no idea, and I will, I'll just, when I talk about IMDb trivia, I will just accept the fact that it might not be true. You know, it's like, I'll look and I'll see like, oh, okay, so they considered these 12 different actors for the role, and it says that on Wikipedia, and then I see that same list on on, uh, IMDb, and all of a sudden it's like, they added like four or five other actors, and I'm like, yeah, throw it, I'll throw them in there, I don't give a shit, I'm just... But I, but for the most part, I I take it with a big old grain of salt for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, if this one's true, I actually found this kind of interesting. So apparently they raised money for this, again, being their first movie. They made a trailer of it and then they went door to door showing people the trailer and asking for donations. And they raised wow. like a decent amount of money. According to the, the little factoid it said, uh, or the alleged factoid, they raised like $750,000 doing this, which seems insane to me, especially in 1984. Um, But it was like primitive crowdsourcing. It was like Kickstarter before Kickstarter. They just went door to door and said, hey, we've got this idea for a movie. Here's the trailer. If you want to see it get made, throw us what you can. And they raised a bunch of money that way. That's Um, pretty incredible, honestly. Is this one that you you watched? Have you seen this one? So I, I, I haven't seen Blood Simple in probably close to 20 years. And I remember having a lot of the same feelings you're talking about regarding it. And that was why I... I even almost considered watching it last night on because it's on HBO Max. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I'll just go back and see if that one is like I thought it was. And then I decided against it and watched a Christmas movie. But I um, I remember it being 
very slow, like painfully slow. Mm -hmm. And it was just painfully slow. It's just I thought that the pace needed to pick up. And I understood that it was a early movie. It was very independent seeming and all that stuff. But at the same time, yeah, I personally don't I don't remember it being good enough to revisit. And that was kind of why I elected not to rewatch for this episode. Yeah, the the, the one, uh, I guess the interesting thing about the movie itself was like, I I definitely got the feeling that you could see kind of the early glimpses. This isn't the, the first crime gone wrong movie that they've, or it is the first, sorry. It's not the only crime gone wrong movie that they've made. Uh, and you can kind of see those early glimpses of like one thing goes wrong and it sets a domino effect and just, more things go wrong. I feel like a, a, a screenplay writing skill that they uh, perfected in later years, and we'll probably get to that eventually. Well, we'll definitely get to that eventually. But uh, you can you can kind of see the the early buds of like, oh, this it, it doesn't not feel like a Coen Brothers movie, but it definitely hadn't. You know, I don't think they developed their voice yet, so to speak. No, right. It's got it's got some of those staples of a lot of Coen Brothers movies that really came into their own in later movies. And it's kind of cool to see the early on iterations of those. So that's my, uh, that's my fifth pick or my number five, I should say. So back to you for your number five. Okay. So I kind of, well, actually I I do want to say that I'm a little surprised because when we were discussing which movies were included and not included in the Coen brothers filmography, when you listed the movies that you needed to watch in order to get a better perspective on which movies to rank you listed. I thought you listed blood simple as a movie that you've seen like several times over. No, it was a, a movie that I'd seen recently because I had literally just watched it on HBO max. Okay. That's why All right, <laughs> after so we that's... decided to do this, because I'd was, like watched was... it the day before. <laughs> yeah. So like I got that, I guess that, that mix of being recent or seeing multiple times. It Correct. was like, I kind of thought when I saw it, I was like, oh, well, he's probably seen this multiple times. It's a very old movie. And, you know, maybe he's just he really likes it. And so I kind of ex- I wasn't really sure what to expect. I thought you were probably going to have it ranked higher just out of the initial <laughs> movie type thing. So yeah. anyway, yeah. So I kind of went in a probably less than favorable direction with because I, I was like trying to rank these and I probably a monster for doing this. But so my next movie is Miller's crossing from 1990 with Gabriel Byrne and Marsha Gay Harden. And I ranked it a B because I couldn't really find middle of the pack movies that I was prepared to talk about as far as Coen brothers. I mean, just most of the time with their movies, I either am really not a big fan or you know, but it was it was tough for me. So anyway, uh, Miller's Crossing, it's a what I would call a mob thriller. It's from the 1920s. It's or set in the 1920s, I should say, not from the 1920s. And I got to watch this movie in my second favorite way to experience a movie, which is that I watched it without any memory whatsoever of the first time I saw it because I saw it so long ago and it was, you know, I remember it being good when I first saw it, but I just never really went back to it because it was just not the kind of movie that I thought merited multiple viewings over over time. But anyway, so the way the way this movie is presented, it's I don't really I, I don't really want to exhaustively explain the plot, but I, I will say that they're you know, it's all these mobsters and they're kind of 
the way they're interacting with, you know, different people want power in this town and they're doing different mobster type things. I mean, they're just, you know, like some of them are putting hits out on one another or they're having one guy, you know, like Gabriel Burns character, they'll, they'll have him, they want him to kill somebody. And, you know, basically the concept is Gabriel Byrne gets asked or he gets told to kill this guy who is the brother of the woman that he's having an affair with because she's actually the girlfriend of his mob boss. And he just, he can't kill the brother. And so he makes it seem as though he has killed the brother and tells the brother to get out of town and all of that stuff. And it just basically, it shows the way it kind of backfires and how he has all sorts of problems with that. But I mean, I do want to say, and I found this very surprising as I wrote it in my notes, Marsha Gay Harden is hot question mark because <laughs> I don't, I don't ever, I think of her as having arguably the biggest resting bitch face in all of Hollywood. Like, honestly, I see her face and I just think she seems pissed about everything right now. I don't know what like, her deal is. Like if you look up resting bitch face in urban dictionary, it probably has a link to her. Like Absolutely. she could have invented it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, <laughs> and it's funny because it's so it's like, I've seen her, she was in what's that. Oh, it's a Stephen King movie. It's I think it's called the mist and she's really good in that, but she's also aggressively angry in it. And she, you know, it fits her acting style really well but i i just i found it funny because i was like watching this i'm like she's actually really good looking in this movie and i'm kind of surprised and she's probably i don't know how old she was when she made this movie it had to be one of her first major well, it was roles. in 1990 right so yeah 32 yeah. years ago yeah i think she would have been i just looked her up she she would have been 30 31 it was her first wow. major role it's her first film credit uh she oh, had some wow. tv credits but it's her first film credit on wikipedia at least wow that's there you interesting. go yeah, so so I mean, I really enjoyed the actual plot of the movie, but I also I felt like it had less a less than satisfying ending for me. Like I just I didn't feel like it came to a great signing off point. It, but I know that's as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, well, this is the Cohen brothers, and that's kind of a thing that they like to do. Like they often kind of leave you on this weird note, they, it's not always super satisfying with them. That's just at least my experience with them. And then, yes. Yeah. That's definitely something they like to do. That'll probably come up again later. <laughs> oh yeah, most definitely. And they, so, I mean, I, I, I can't remember the first movie I saw that, that, that happened in. And like, it actually, the movie ended up growing on me, but I really didn't care for the way they ended the film. It was just not a good way to close it out. But my little uh, tidbit about this movie, and I promise I won't have tidbits for every single movie, but I just, there's certain ones that I can't go without mentioning just because of who I am as a person. Um, <laughs> the Coen brothers reportedly turned down Batman from 1989 because it would have interfered with this film. So we could have gotten a Coen brothers Batman movie. And I'd love to know what that looks like. I would just, Oh man, that could be amazing. <laughs> but obviously that's, that's me. I'm, I'm the Batman oh, yeah. guy. Well, so obviously that's another one of those ones where like, I want a source for that one. <laughs> so that was you the know? thing is I did an episode. I recorded one that had, won't come out until hmm. March, but I did an episode on Batman from 1989 
And it was also in the notes that basically the Coen brothers, the explanation was different. It was like they said the Coen brothers almost directed Batman, but because they weren't going to be able to have creative control Mm. of the movie, they didn't want to do it. And I, I was like, that does sound like on brand for them, you know, like they would want to have control of the movie. And I mean, adapting it, they're not even their adaptations. They make their own. Exactly. Yeah. So that was my thought. So I, I rated this one B. I like it quite a bit. I did rewatch it for this episode because I hadn't seen it in so long. And I really, really, truly enjoyed my viewing of it. It was just that it was in, in regard to some of the other ones on my list. Yeah. I couldn't rank it yeah. too high. Well, I mean, they, they have some real all-stars, as we said before. Right, right. So you got right to the good ones. Um, I only, though, to be fair, only had a couple that I didn't like. My next one is one like yours. I jump up to a B grade. I enjoy this movie a lot. So my next one is Hail Caesar from 2016. Okay. I don't know if this one will show up on your list somewhere. It essentially follows a day in the life of a Hollywood studio manager in the 50s. And by studio manager, I mean like he's like a Hollywood crisis fixer type guy. And and the, the whole movie follows him through the course of a day from early in the morning until like, well, basically I think the next morning. But- He's just going like crisis to crisis to crisis and talk about pace. This is like the exact opposite of the last one that I talked about. Blood simple. This one is like, it's got a beat to it. Like it's constantly go, 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 which kind of mirrors the main character who is played by Josh Brolin and a very fantastic and very Josh Brolin character. Um, If there's one thing that I've come to realize in the last couple of years, it's that Josh Brolin might be one of my top five favorite actors. I love seeing Josh Josh Brolin. He's just, he crushes it. Like everything he's he's phenomenal. He's so good. And he plays completely different characters, but it's always kind of him. And it's always fantastic. And this movie, no different. So speaking of his performance there, the things that I liked about this movie right off the bat, all of the performances, like, Everybody in this movie, it's another one with a star-studded cast and cameos just keep popping up, but like everybody is crushing it in this movie. Even Jonah Hill shows up for like two minutes and is kind of perfect in the in the moment that he's in as like a no nonsense, doesn't want to joke around accountant guy or something. Like like bookkeeper or something, but he's unique and kind of perfect in the, in the moment. Uh, So yeah, Josh Brolin is a gem in this and not just the characters themselves, but like the dynamic between characters in this movie and the way that they interact with not just the the other characters, but like the environments that they're in. It's it's very unique and everybody kind of nails it. So like there's uh, this character, Hobie, who's played by, Sorry, this is riveting. I know what guy you're talking about, too, and I can't think of what his name is. Yeah, um, Eldon Ehrenreich. Is that him? Yeah, that's him. So anyway, he's like this old West movie star. He's a horse riding, you know, gunslinger type uh, John Wayne, but not a tough guy, it seems. It seems like he's a more more charming type, but he gets like shoehorned into a movie because they just need a big name, and it's a completely non- Western gunslinger movie, and it's being directed by uh, Albert Fines, or sorry, Ralph Fines, not Albert, Ralph Fines, and he's like this. I don't know. If he's supposed to be like a, a French, you know, hoity-toity director or whatever. But they have this entire scene where they're he's trying to get him to say this line in a very specific way, but 
it's like this super country drawl. <laughs> yeah. You can't get it. It's, I don't know, it just, it makes me laugh. And that's like a perfect example of how these characters play off each other through the whole movie in this like brilliant way. Another thing that I really liked, George Clooney's character. So George Clooney's character, right off the bat, he gets kidnapped by Newman from Seinfeld. Wayne uh, Knight. <laughs> yeah, by Wayne Knight. And he gets kidnapped. He gets like like drugged and kidnapped and he wakes up in this house. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know who these people are that have kidnapped him. But he's like never nervous or scared. He's just immediately curious and interested in what they have to talk about. <laughs> right. And he ends up like embroiled in these communism discussions with these. And it turns out it's these communists uh, in Hollywood that have kidnapped him and they're holding him for ransom. But he's like cheery and wants to know, wants to learn more from them. And at one point, this is actually one of the highlights of the whole movie for me. I was at a borderline of like a C plus or a B minus honestly. But one of the things that pushed it firmly into the B range for me was when he's talking to to one of the guy, one of the, the kidnappers, and he starts telling this story about the time that Danny Kay asked him to shave his back. <laughs> oh my God. And it's so funny. And I even wrote down the line. I don't want to just turn it into a regurgitate funny lines, but he says, that's exactly what happened to me in Reno when Danny Kay, or, that's exactly what happened to me in Reno with Danny Kay when he asked me to shave his back. And then he <laughs> launches into this Danny Kay shaving his back story. And the person he's talking to, who is this like scholar, just looks at him like, the fuck are you talking about? What does this have to do with anything? Yeah. <laughs> but it's wow. so funny. And yeah. uh, it's like little, little exchanges like that through the whole movie. Tons of good one-liners, tons of great moments, very Ethan and Joel Coheny in that regard. There's another scene where there's like these religious re, uh, these religious leaders that Josh Brolin is is discussing a movie with because they're making a movie about Jesus in the background. And mm-hmm. he wants to make sure that they get that Jesus moment right because, you know, they don't want to offend anyone and it's yeah. got to be perfect, etc. So he's got like a couple of rabbis and a couple of Christian leaders and all this and like this the the conversation they have though is only kind of tangentially related to the movie they're making and it's hilarious mm-hmm. at one point one of the rabbis says that he doesn't buy it because how why would he he uh be able to jump from one chariot to the other at full speed yeah. <laughs> and right. you know not to go into you know my own thoughts on religion but like really that's the thing you can't believe rabbi <laughs> Right. Yeah. (laughs) That he can jump from a chariot at full speed. (laughs) Very fair point, honestly. Uh, The only, if I, if I had to say one thing that's negative about it, the only thing is that I mentioned that was super star studded. I feel like some of the cameos feel forced. Like, It's the one time I think in any of these movies where Frances McDormand was unnecessary. Like her character, I'm not really sure why she's there or what that scene was supposed to convey, but like a couple of these felt forced. um, Yeah. And, and kind of unnecessary though, uh, though having said that it wasn't enough to bring it down. I did read that Eddie Mannix, the uh, Josh Brolin character was based on a true person named EJ Mannix from the fifties, who was like a Hollywood fixer. So it was, it was loosely based on him or at least inspired by that, by that guy in real life to one of the only, if not the only Coen brother brothers movie with a body count of zero. Nobody dies in the entire movie, which is yeah. uh, Uncommon. Very (laughs) movies. Right. But yeah, sorry. Is this one of the ones that you watched or or had? It is not. Do you have anything to say about it? 
I so I saw this one in theaters and I probably need to rewatch it, but I remember not being overly impressed with it when I watched it in theaters. But I, you know, it could be one of those situations where I just need to give it another go and see how I feel about it. Cause I mean, it sounds like it's, it's a lot better than yeah, I remember I, it being. I would say give it a go and watch it for the moments, for the little moments yeah. that jump out. Like there's speaking of musicals, Channing Tatum does a musical number and it's fantastic. Like yeah. it's legitimately a good musical number um, and it's Channing Tatum doing it, which is even stranger. Right. Yeah. Um, right. You know, one of the things that I, that I really enjoy when I'm watching movies and might be one of the reasons why I really particularly enjoy watching the Coen brothers movies is, you know, as I said, like these little tiny moments that, that mm-hmm. you catch in their movies. And one of them that like jumped off the page at me was as high paced as this movie is. And Josh Brolin's character like never stops. Like he never stops. He never pauses. He never slows down. He's just going, going, going at a hundred miles an hour, the entire movie. Right. But at yeah. one point, his secretary buzzes in and tells him his wife is on the phone and he just pauses and puts his head down and goes, <sighs> it's like the only time in the entire movie that he pauses Yeah, and he feels exasperated. And like, it was one of the most perfect deliveries of the entire movie. Like his, his entire body just deflates for a minute. Right. Because he feels bad, right? Because he's like a workaholic and yeah. he knows he needs to give more time to his wife and kids. But like, she interjects right in the middle of when he's trying to deal with this crisis. I mean, his star, the star of one of his movies was just kidnapped from the set and they don't know where he is. He's gone missing. Yeah. And, you know, he's got twin sisters, both played by Tilda Swinton, like breathing down his neck. And yeah. this this pops up and he's just like he has this moment of like just defeat. <laughs> and it's yeah. brilliant. Like watch <laughs> the movie just for that two seconds. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I'm kind of pissed because I didn't look it up. Like I looked up. <laughs> a few different Coen brothers movies to see what I could watch on streaming and just get a chance to revisit them. And I didn't realize this one was on Netflix right now. So I could have easily rewatched it and gotten a better, you know, look at it more recent. So yes, it is definitely on Netflix. Check it out while you have a chance. Fun little fact uh, that Alden Ehrenreich guy actually played young Han Solo in the movie Solo, the star Wars movie, which is, I Man, uh, yeah, I, I remembered having seen him in this. And when they said they were casting him as Han Solo, I was like, I don't know if I can really see him playing young Harrison Ford at all. But I digress. So, <laughs> well, he's pretty good in this in his bit part that he. Yeah, that he has. Right. Yeah. So so did you have any anything nope, else? on that's that it. one? Okay. That's it. That's all I got on that one. Check it okay. out. I liked it. So naturally, if Dan and I actually do come across any ones that we talk about that we've already got on one another's lists we will kind of handle it in in the way that we've been handling each of these movies where we talk about you know if if it's my pick i will say what i have to say about the movie and dan can kind of respond to that and then when it comes back around to dan's pick then you know we can easily just talk about dan's opinions on it and all that stuff and i'm we're hoping it'll work out just fine like that but we'll we'll have to tweak and think see how things go but my next movie is burn after reading from 2008 starring francis mcdormand george clooney and brad pitt for the genre it's a comedy drama thriller ish i mean it's all sorts of things but it's satirical for sure at the very least i absolutely love the silliness of this whole plot the way it all plays out and how dumb francis mcdormand and 
Brad Pitt's characters actually are. <laughs> they work at this gym called Hard Bodies, and Frances McDormand wants to get plastic surgery all over her body. I mean, just everything she wants to get worked on. Basically, what it is is they come across John Malkovich's character has he's a you see at the beginning of the movie that he quits working at the CIA in lieu of taking a demotion, basically. And he decides he's going to write memoirs and he accidentally leaves a copy of his memoirs, like a digital copy in like a locker room at Hard Bodies. And it's basically like they Brad Pitt and Francis McDormand find this and they think that it could be like top secret stuff. And so they decide they want to blackmail John Malkovich. And it's funny because all the while, you know, the only relationship that George Clooney has to any of the rest of the plot is that John Malkovich's wife is cheating on John Malkovich with, she's played by Tilda Swinton, and she is cheating with George Clooney. And there's just a lot. I mean, honestly, it's the best, one of the best satires I've ever seen. Like, it's just the way they kind of, you know, have everybody be a little paranoid and everybody's just kind of looking over their shoulder all the time and they're just worried about what might happen. And, you know, all of this stuff just happens in the blink of an eye. You're just watching this plot unfold. And you truly, I don't think, while I was watching this the first time, I never had any fucking idea what was going to happen next because it was that (laughs) ridiculous. I mean, it was just really enjoyable. Everybody's playing their part exactly as they should play it. I think that, you know, like Tilda Swinton is this aggressively unlikable character, but she plays it so fucking well. As Tilda Swinton would. (laughs) Right, exactly. I mean, it's a perfect- It's kind of her forte. (laughs) Yeah. And so, I mean, the comedy, like I said, very well done. Uh, I love there there are these so i i don't really have like the a pull quote from the but basically they figure out what john malkovich is you know his character's name osborne cox and they reach out to him to initiate this blackmail to try and get him to give them money in order to get back his secret memoirs and basically he, brad pitt is such an idiot he keeps like double checking to make sure that he's Osborne Cox when he interacts with him. And he keeps, he's like Osborne Cox. And he's like, yes, yes. Like John and John Malkovich is perfect in that he's <laughs> yes. so John Malkovich. Yes. It's just like, Oh my God, he is so over the top. And it's like, so- yes, Brad Pitt goes full goofball and John Malkovich goes full John Malkovich. He really in does. That scene in the car is the one you're talking about. Right? The scene in the car. Yes. Yep. And, and so, you know, and he finally just punches him in the nose. <laughs> yeah. And because John Malkovich basically explains to him that, you know, like what he's doing is highly illegal and is, you know, a federal offense and all this stuff. And it's a felony and all, you know, I mean, so but there's a scene with that I love with George Clooney, where he keeps thinking that somebody's tailing him or staking him out and he catches this guy finally. And it's this scrawny guy that I've seen in a dozen movies before. He's like, he asks him who he works for. Cause he's got him like down on the ground and the kids like Tuckman Marsh. And he's like, is that a law firm? And he goes, 
no, it's a rock band. Yes, it's a law firm. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just like, I I just love uh, this movie. And especially I'd be remiss if I didn't mention J.K. Simmons is in this movie in a pretty bit role. And basically you kind of get to see him. He works for the CIA. He's like higher up management type. And he's talking to one of his subordinates who is the, you know, the former boss of John Malkovich's character. And he basically just, he's getting the scoop on what's going on. And it's so baffling, like just to have it parroted back (laughs) to hear what these things have been, are, are that are, you know, that have been going on. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, are you shitting me? You know, like he just, he's in disbelief and JK Simmons plays it perfectly. I just fucking love him. But I did, I, I rated this one a B. I would have loved to have given it, but unfortunately there's just certain ones that, received higher grades for me i would 100 recommend burn after reading i mean there's a lot of great stars in it and it's got a lot of wonderful comedic moments that are totally worth your time yeah i, I obviously i've seen this one uh, i also liked it but i didn't include it on my list but i would have uh, probably rated it just as you did it's really good i wouldn't put it in like the a tier necessarily but uh it's an enjoyable movie and worth watching for sure and it's, Again, it's a very short one. It's, right? it's only yeah, it's like 95 minutes long. So it's it's definitely digestible from that standpoint, too. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was that was all I had on, on Burn After Reading. But definitely check that one out if you get a chance. Yep. All right. So my next one, and I think we're getting into some some heavy hitters now. What What's our time check here? Uh, yeah. I, 115. I don't, I don't think we'll have any problem filling time. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. <laughs> got three given we're halfway through (laughs) right so i'll try and speed it up a little bit here but uh but it'll be tough because i mean next i've got fargo on my list i mean let's let's not forget we had like 10 minutes of snow talk at the beginning of this episode (laughs) that doesn't need to exist so (laughs) trust me it's talk about it as you normally would and if we have a two and a half hour long Uh, episode i'm good with it all right yeah we haven't even uh, uh you haven't even recorded your intro yet we skipped right past that. Oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't do that because I. I figured this it's going to be yeah. a separate thing. You know, <laughs> it's a, it's a bonus up. Fargo is my next one. 1996, starring Francis McDormand. No surprise there. William H Macy, Steve Buscemi, the guy whose name I can never ever remember, but I know when I see it. Peter Stormare. Uh, oh yes, absolutely brilliant in everything he's in. This is like kind of the perfection of the crime gone wrong story that. I hinted at earlier, right, where they, you know, clearly they had dabbled previously and then they get to 1996. They make Fargo and it wins like every award possible. It's the talk of the town. Spoiler alert. I liked it. And if you are listening and have not seen Fargo, the movie, not the TV movie, but the uh, major motion picture by the Coen brothers in 1996, do yourself a favor, stop what you're doing and go watch it. It's amazing. Um, Absolutely. Having said that. I only put it in the A tier, which I feel weird about. Like, I let me say this. I could be very easily convinced to give this an S tier because this yeah. movie really is brilliant. The performances are on point. The script is amazing. The perfect and yet almost disturbing mix of drama and dark comedy. And when I say dark comedy, I mean like all capital letters, bold, underlined, italicized, slightly larger font, dark comedy. Right. Yeah. It's got and, and the comedy that it does have, it's usually in an uncomfortable sort of way, you know, one of those like un- uncomfortable funny, but it's done really well and really subtle. 
perfect example of this when Frances McDormand's character meets up at this diner with an old classmate of hers. And this guy is like so, uh, who I think is played by Stephen Park. Um, uh, it, it, it's like, it's so uncomfortable. And this guy is so weird. Like, he mm-hmm. clearly has a thing for her and wants to like spark an affair with her or something. But then he starts crying about his deceased wife, who you immediately find out afterward is not only not deceased, but was never his wife, just this girl that he had a crush on in high school. <laughs> And there's this one part in this movie or in this scene where, you know, they're at this diner, they're in this booth and mid sentence, he just says, actually, you mind if I come over here and sit next to you? And he like swings around to sit right next to her in the booth and kind of puts his arm on the back of the booth around her and continues talking. And she just goes, no, I'd be more comfortable if you're over there. (laughs) And he's like, oh, uh, okay. And so he goes back and sits down. She's, she like tries to be so polite about it. It's like, oh no, no, it's fine. Just don't want to turn my neck. (laughs) Right. And they have these, I should mention these ridiculously over the top Northern Minnesota accents, everybody in the movie, basically. So that's like the humor in it that's weird. And then they somehow at one point make Steve Buscemi getting shot in the face kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he keeps, he like patches it with a napkin through it. Cause like it doesn't kill him. He like just goes through the rest of the movie with this like glancing bullet wound on his face that he's like covered with a napkin from a diner or something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Or that he pulled out of his glove box. I don't even remember it. This this is one that I've seen a bunch of times, but hadn't watched in a long time. But so, yeah, so that's really, you know, there's a lot to like in this movie. The the story that unfolds, it's, it's essentially uh, my one sentence synopsis was a crime gone wrong ends in the most unique use of a wood chipper in cinematic history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unforgettable, uh, honestly. A more specific thing is uh, William H. Macy is like super in debt. So he like basically stages a kidnapping. He, he like has his wife kidnapped for ransom to try and get the money from, I think it's her rich parents, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. Um, yep. And then it just, every the wheels come off and everything goes wrong. You know, people yeah. end up dead. He ends up in a very bad way. And by the way, William H. Macy is amazing in this movie. There's a, there's a scene that I remember seeing this movie in the theater when I was 14, my dad took me to this because he used to take me to movies all the time when I was a teenager. More on that later as well. And, and as a child, too, he would actually pull me out of school sometimes and we'd go watch a movie if he was bored and had the day wow. off. So, yeah, I learned early on to skip school and go watch movies. Um, and this is one of the ones we went and saw in the theater. I remember the scene where William H. Macy goes out to his car and he it's you know it's northern minnesota it's in the winter everything's covered in snow and ice and he's scraping the ice off his car with an ice scraper as as you do in northern minnesota in the winter and as he's scraping like the problems with this whole mess are slowly like kind of catching up with him in his brain and he slowly gets more and more frustrated and aggressive and he ends up like smacking the windshield and he throws his ice scraper and he's like almost crying And then he takes a deep breath and he picks up his ice scraper and he goes back to scraping. And it's like, there's no word spoken, but it's such a powerful scene. It's crazy. Yeah, right. Um, Not much to not like about this uh, for as like highlight of the movie. I actually mentioned that uh, I wrote down that William H. Macy scene scraping off the ice in his car. The only thing that always kind of uh, that I never really got was why. Frances McDormand's character is pregnant in it. I'm not sure if that's like a plot. Dev- I mean, it never really comes up. I don't know if it was like a, some sort of a movie making plot device, but yeah, they I mean, never like it. It's unnecessary, but 
I don't right, know but if it, it would have been. It does, it does kind of make it a little more unique and a little, you know, it's yeah. like she's got morning sickness when she goes to the crash site or, you know, whatever. It's like, I mean, so. Yeah, maybe like it's it's another way to illustrate just how different her character is from all these horrible people. Like she's got this, you know, the ba- the innocence of babes <laughs> right. being carried around with her, literally. One little bit of trivia. Uh, I, I didn't really see much interesting worth bringing up other than this one thing jumped out at me because uh it's i sometimes wonder with really brilliant but kind of silly scenes if this happens more often in the movies and we just don't really know it but apparently the scene where uh william h macy who is a car salesman is arguing with a couple of customers about a true coat that yeah they didn't want and that he did anyway and that now he's trying to charge for them and this guy is super mad apparently that scene was a verbatim transcript from ethan cohen's actual life (laughs) like that that happened at one point and like he wrote it down it was so absurd and it made its way into a movie and i wonder sometimes how often those little things happen you're like man how do they come up with that scene it's like we've all had weird situations that we could probably shoehorn into a scene of a movie (laughs) yeah right well and it's like that like that is such a quintessential sleazy car salesman move you know i mean it's just so so clearly something that would happen and probably does happen all the time especially in the midwest in these snowy states where it's like people that's one of the upselling items that they bring (laughs) up that it's like oh you've got to get this true coat you know yeah and then it's like like, but i told you i didn't want it right (laughs) and then it's like it comes back that he basically says like oh they put it on at the factory so it's like there was never like that was never on the table to not get it basically is how it comes off. It's and like, if it was, then they had already agreed on a price. Right. Exactly. <laughs> with the true code. Like yeah. it's just when he says, let me go check with my manager and he walks away and just talks about football and then comes back. And he's yeah. like, well, we never do this, but and the guy's like, yeah. you're a fucking liar. <laughs> They're so pissed. Oh my God. Uh, anyway, I, it's a great movie. Um, oh yeah. Like I said, saw it in the movie when i was a kid i've seen it since uh it's it's an all-time classic if you haven't seen it go see it absolutely i got nothing else to say about it back to you all right so my next one and i know that this one's later on your list and fargo is on my list later as well the big lebowski from 1998 which i rated a was uh it stars jeff bridges john goodman and steve buscemi among many others it's in a genre that I guess I would label comedy slash crime, but I don't really know how how to define this genre. I, I would say bizarre. it's a it's a comedy flat out. Yeah, it happens to have a crime taking place in it. <laughs> yeah, that's but. probably true. Um, so I mean, my my favorite part of this entire movie, it would this movie would honestly be like it would be watchable, but it wouldn't be anywhere near what it is for me if not for john goodman as walter and just how he brings everything in the world that he talks about back to (laughs) vietnam and like the you know just the vietnam war and how everything is you know is connected to it in some way and it's always got to be his thing and it's like you know he does this little eulogy midway through the movie and the person who died (laughs) has absolutely no connection to the Vietnam war whatsoever. And he just goes off on this tangent about how so many men were lost in the Vietnam war. And it's like, (laughs) how could you possibly have that much of a one track mind that you could, you could actually like 
which Jeff, Bris- which Jeff Bridges calls him on in that scene. Right, he does. He <laughs> actually, because that is the one thing. Like, so Jeff Bridges is probably the most laid back character you could ask for, except for in regard to Walter, because he's always getting fed up with Walter's shit about, you know, just like, like are you? Are you fucking kidding me, Walter? Like, get the fuck out of here! Like, you know what I mean? Like that. Those are the <laughs> fun, few times where he breaks and he finally fun fact, says something. Fun fact: I, I say that uh, that very thing on a regular basis because I in, in fact have a cat named Walter, named after that character. There you go. <laughs> Just so that I could say things like, "What are you talking about, Walter? Get the fuck out of here!" <laughs> You're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. Yes. That's my favorite. <laughs> So I love um, I love the dudes. Uh, the dude is Jeff Bridges character. His real name is Lebowski is Jeffrey Lebowski, but he goes by the dude or his dudeness or elder Duderino, if if you will. He has just this way of interacting with people that he's basically just like couldn't give a shit less, you know, one way or the other, whatever you got to do, man, you know, like it's just everything's cool. No big deal. You know, and I mean, he's he's just very calm in his demeanor, and I really enjoy it. I think that Jeff Bridges does a great job. And actually, a fun little tidbit that I read on the IMDb trivia section, which is that before filming a scene, Jeff Bridges would frequently ask the Coen brothers, did the dude burn one on the way over? And if they said that he had, he would rub his knuckles into his eyes before doing a take to make his eyes appear bloodshot. And I'm like, that's fucking perfect. Like, honestly, (laughs) just wanting to get that captured, that's fucking great. But I mean, to be fair, I do love, I mean, aside from just the characters and loving them so much, I do love the plot of this movie and how basically, you know, they get, the dude gets wrangled into handling this ransom exchange for a kidnapping and it goes awry and spoiler alert, but you find out that the money is, you know, they don't. They didn't really give him any money to give for the ransom. They just padded it with phone book papers and things like that. <laughs> nor was she really kidnapped. Nor like right. <laughs> nothing yeah. is was what nothing is as it seems in this. No, and many of the characters think they have that figured out, but none of them are quite right. <laughs> right? Yeah, they're all they're all yeah. yeah. It's it's crazy, but I mean, I guess. I mean, obviously, I love Steve Buscemi as well. He's pretty hilarious in this. And the only thing I will say, and this is probably what kept the Big Lebowski out of an S tier for me, is this is just personal preference, but I don't care for the fantasy dream sequence at Uh. the bowling alley. I don't like it. I don't like the Kenny Rogers first edition song or whatever it is. I don't like the, the, the fantasy nonsense I, I i don't i can't really go for it and i like every time every time i watch the movie i fast forward it now and that's mm. how i feel about it so i'm just kind of that's where i struggle i won't defend that scene though i do like the uh song yeah yeah as far as that one's concerned i mean i i love that one it's it's definitely an a grade i revisit it all the time and i really enjoy it it's just uh yeah that one little scene was my only real gripe about it yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have more to say on that one because it is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, it is on my list, which should be no surprise considering my cat's named after John Goodman's character in it. But uh, so did, do you have anything else to say on that one? Nope, that was it. All right, so my next one is not The Big Lebowski, so you can deduce what you will from that. <laughs> but uh, my second to last one is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, this is a comedy, 2000. Um, I gave it an A. Really, really like this movie. 
stars George Clooney, John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson, the aforementioned uh, Buster Scruggs from the movie I didn't like, um, but he is awesome in this movie. Uh, as Delmar O'Donnell. It's got, uh, I think, uh, Holly Hunter shows up um, and and a few other folks here and there. Steven Root, as usual, as he is wont to do in uh, Coen Brothers movies. Always a treat when you see uh, him pop up. And this one is essentially, uh, it's it's loosely based on the story of the Odyssey by Homer. You know, Odysseus trying to get home to uh, back to his homeland before his wife remarries because he's been away at war for years and years. But in this case, it's a con artist who breaks out of jail with two of his uh, his buddies in order to get home to prevent his wife from remarrying. He, uh, it, The con artist in question is George Clooney, and his buddies are Tim Blake Nelson and John Turturro. And he coaxes them into helping him bust out by telling them that there's some hidden treasure somewhere that they're going to go get. But really, he just wants to get back. You find out later, he just wants to get back to his home and uh, stop his wife from getting remarried because he heard that she's going to. Again, as far as what's to like about this, as has been the case with the last couple movies I've mentioned, the performances and little moments in this and one-liners are just like so amazing and and perfect. Tim Blake Nelson as Delmar O'Donnell is one of my favorite characters of any movie of all time. It's just amazing. There's a scene where they stumble across a uh, like a priest baptizing people in a river. You know, or they they wade out to the river and he says a prayer and then like dunks him under the water. And then he says, you know, oh, and all your sins are washed away now and whatever. And he like loses his mind and goes running into the water, interrupts the, the ceremony to have the priest dunk him under the water. And he comes up and he's like beaming. And he says, you hear that, boys? All my sins have been washed away. <laughs> Like, like in his head, it means that like, he's not guilty of whatever crime he went to prison for. He's like, you know, he is completely absolved in his head. And it's like full of little moments like that. Uh, There's a bunch of cameos and guest appearances. They happen uh, uh, to get wrapped up in one scene with uh, Babyface Nelson, who's uh, robbing banks and on the run, who who yells as he's leaving one of the banks. Remember folks, Jesus says with George Nelson withdraws, which I always loved that line. Like it's just so many great little lines. I think when I first saw this, which would have been what it was 2000. So yeah, it would have been seven, 17, 18. Um, that was within a couple of years after I had kind of gotten into like world literature and stuff too, which is like a, a weird connection to make but honestly i was at that time in my life kind of on like a greek epic kick (laughs) and so like i loved the fact that it was like retelling the story of the odyssey and even uh george clooney's character's name is ulysses which is like the roman version of odysseus and so like i you know john goodman appears as the cyclops he's got one eye the sirens are in it and they uh they lure them in and then like rob them um, and when they wake up, they, they're convinced that John Turturro has been turned into a toad. Because <laughs> I, as I recall in the story, the sirens t- turn his men into pigs or something like that. But uh, And so <laughs> Tim Blake Nelson carries around a shoebox with the frog in it for, uh, for quite a while in the movie, convinced that it's John Turturro. <laughs> when, and you find out later he was just wandered away and got recaptured by the police. <laughs> but, right. but you see him again later. But yeah. Lots to like about this movie. It's very, very goofy. Um, again, I, I just 
keep mentioning all these like hilarious little one-liners and moments. Like when he says, I'm the, I'm the goddamn pedophilias. when He's talking to his daughters, <laughs> trying to explain why their mom can't get remarried. And they, they don't believe him that, that he's their dad because she told them that he got hit by a train. <laughs> so he's like, no, you're not our dad. He got hit by a train. He's like, I'm the goddamn pedophilias. <laughs> and uh, when he calls Holly Hunter a lying, inconstant succubus, <laughs> or when he's trying to get his uh, his pomade that that is like very specific, oh, and yeah. uh, the guy keeps telling him he'll have it in two weeks, and he says, "Well, isn't this place just a geographical oddity? Two weeks from everywhere." <laughs> no matter what it is he wants it's two weeks away there's a great song in it which i think won an oscar actually because the, the soundtrack ended up being like a the one of the best-selling cds of the year uh the song man of constant sorrow sung by oh, the, yeah. soggy, the soggy bottom boys which uh fun bit of trivia related to that that i had heard before george clooney fancied himself a singer and practiced and practiced and practiced and got voice lessons and did all these things to try and actually sing that in the movie but he still wasn't any good and so uh so they did in fact overdub him with a professional singer that's not George Clooney singing um right i mean to be fair it doesn't even really sound like it could be George Clooney I mean, <laughs> right it really doesn't <laughs> yeah i mean i mean um, i was i was wondering if you were going to mention the music cuz i mean the yes, music is obviously yes. huge in this movie it's it's huge and because that ends up kind of being their saving grace as they end up being this like this uh, bluegrass band that is super popular unbeknownst to them when they had stopped briefly in the middle of nowhere to sing into a can because they heard that this guy pays people to sing into a can that <gasps> became like a best selling single across the south and they were like pop stars and didn't even realize it yeah <laughs> and that character who tells them about that is uh, basically a riff on Robert Johnson this uh black guy with a guitar that they pick up who uh tells them that he sold his soul to the devil to learn how to play this here guitar it's Right out of uh, real life, Robert Johnson, Crossroad Blues, little nugget there for uh, people who didn't pick up on that. But anyway, love this movie. This is another one that I saw in theaters back in the day. I actually saw this a couple of times in the theaters. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now I watch like one, I go to the movie theater maybe once every three years. And this was back when I went probably two or three times a week, I think. Loved movies. Saw this with my dad in the theater. Saw it again with some friends in the theater. I remember all my friends loving it as well. A, definitely a material oh brother where art thou oh yeah that see that one is one that i didn't include on my list i like i enjoyed the movie but it's it, you know i haven't seen it in a while and i i just remember really liking the music so much more than i actually liked the movie i think and it was and so it's like i listen to the music all the time but it's just you know like as far as the movie's well, concerned i only revisit every so this, often this is one of those movies which we haven't really touched on yet but in my opinion this is a quintessential movie that the more you watch it the more you'll like it because you'll pick up on little things like yeah. once you know what's going on the plot fades to the background and you start picking up on the little deliveries and the little quips and one-liners and things like that. And you'll just like, if I watch this movie now, I sit there and just giggle the whole way through it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I, I mean, it's definitely a good one. I, I don't know. I mean, if I were open to more movie selections, it would have made my list, but because <laughs> I was going for what I was going for with a number, I, I figured I would leave it out. So, yeah, yeah, so, what, I mean, so what's oh. your next one? Okay, so my next one is No Country for Old Men from 2007, starring Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, and Tommy Lee Jones. I rated this one an A, and this is the one that I actually got really 
fired up, foaming at the mouth about with Dan about <laughs> him. He was basically saying, well, you know, wait a minute. If we are talking about the Coen brothers filmography and we don't count adaptations, remakes or musicals, then, you know, these, we only have 12 movies here. And I was like, no adaptations or are you fucking getting no fucking adaptations you were like so. you're telling me i can't watch no country for old man i was like i think my exact response was like you can watch unbroken if you want like i don't care like <laughs> right watch whatever you want holy cow but yeah I, I was so upset and i really don't know where the fuck that came from so yeah so this movie is a crime drama it's basically like a well a semi-modern western it uh. takes place in 1980 And it tells the tale of Josh Brolin's character, Llewellyn Moss, coming upon what appeared to be a big shootout. And like, it's just the scene of the crime afterward and all these people are dead. And he ends up uncovering this large cache of money. And so he takes it. And then Javier Bardem's character, who is legitimately one of the most terrifying people I've ever seen on screen. He, he is just horrifying and he plays this guy named Anton Chigurh, who goes after Llewellyn Moss trying to recover this money. And then Tommy Lee Jones, his character is a sheriff and he just, he is the one investigating and pursuing the whole crime in progress, basically. And so, I mean, I obviously, I, I rated this A, so I feel pretty strongly about it. I, I love the movie. It's one of those ones that it I watched it and I don't I think it might have been the first Coen Brother movie Coen Brothers movies movie that I actually watched and it was like the ending of this movie legitimately pissed me off and actually like made me not like the movie so much after my first viewing and then I rewatched and I appreciated it a little more and things like that but I mean it just the way it closes out is just to me, it's like it kind of leaves you feeling hollow inside. And it's like, that's kind of what it's supposed to do. So I can't really fault it. But there's this scene that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention in this gas station where Anton Chigurh, Javier Bardem's character, goes in and he talks to the attendant standing at the counter. And there it is easily, probably, I would say, I don't know what else would top it. I think it's probably the most uncomfortable interaction I've ever seen in any movie where Javier Bardem buys something and he gets his change and he decides that he's just going to grill this guy and like make him uncomfortable. And he asks him, what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? And the guy is like, what? Like he's, he's just so taken aback. He doesn't have any idea why this interaction is happening. And essentially Anton Chigurh is having this guy basically bet his life on a coin toss. You know, he's basically saying, if you call the right thing right now, I won't kill you. And that's how this is going to go, you know? And he doesn't really have any logical reason to kill this guy. And uh, all I, what, what I assumed was that when the guy asked him, cause he asked him about, the weather in Dallas or whatever, as soon as he walks in. And my interpretation was that at that point, this clerk has noted details about him and he doesn't want anybody to ever know him or his face or who he is or whatever. And at that point he's like, okay, I'm going to flip a coin. And if you win the coin toss, I'll leave you alone. But if you lose the coin toss, you got to die. That's that's accurate. Yeah. I would say that's yeah. I mean that's what but I would the, get from the him. way he gets there, as you said, is like by way of the most 
uncomfortable yeah. conversation. And it's ever. it is just I mean, basically the it's just like the the entire driving force of this movie is this Anton Chigurh, and it's like what a fucking raging psychopath he is. Like just what and and basically the overall theme of the movie is that Tommy Lee Jones is this seasoned sheriff that is just perplexed by the very notion of what people in the modern world are capable of, you know, that he, he talks about how police officers used to not even carry a gun in older times and things like that. And, you know, he's just like, and they couldn't even imagine doing that now. And this guy, I mean, he's got like a, it's called a captive bolt pistol that he, uh, Shiger uses it to kill people. And it, it reads like a gunshot wound when they find the bodies, but there's no bullet in their body when he uses it. So it's like, it's just really high pressure stud, like coming out of the, the uh, end effector. And it's basically just like killing the person when he holds it to their head. That's yeah, it's what they use to slaughter cattle. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause they, then they don't have the, the danger of flying bullets and that's, that's the very idea of it. So, I mean, just, I, other than what I've mentioned, you know, I love Josh Brolin. As Dan has mentioned, he's also one of my favorites. He's he's another one of those ones that I'd, I'd love to see him in more stuff, even more than he already is. And the only other thing I will mention with this movie is there is a complete lack of scoring. Like, there are very few musical elements in this movie, and they basically deliberately wanted to ground it more in reality and feel like you were just watching something really unfold and you know and it felt more real that way and that was the Cohen brothers idea cuz they they got the same guy that they usually get to do their scores like he did a really good score in Fargo and he did you know he's done a bunch of them but it's like for this one they kind of tied his hands and basically said like yeah we don't want you doing any more than you have to be doing so yeah i mean that's i mean i I absolutely love this one. I think it definitely holds up because it, I mean, the fact that it was set in 1980 really makes it a more timeless type thing because it's, you know, it was made in 2007. So it's very well crafted, well designed, and all of the characters definitely have their part. I, and the only, the only real issue I ever had with it was the ending. And now that's kind of come to pass. Yeah. yeah I, I, I have seen this movie. It had been years since I've seen it. Um, I actually did rewatch it when it became very apparent this was going to be on your list for, yeah. for the aforementioned reasons. Um, uh, and I, I agreed with you with like, it's really good, but the ending left me feeling like, I, I don't know if this was like, because it, it's left very open-ended, but you know, I couldn't decide whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. And, but it kind of left me feeling like I wanted more, which in itself is a good thing. But at the right. same time, I'm like, I, I don't know where I'm supposed to land here. I, I didn't really understand the dream analogy. The the car crash scene oh. there it was was kind of like I don't know if that was supposed to symbolize like ongoing chaos. I, I don't know, but I did I did uh, write down a couple of notes. I wrote down that Javier Bardem is absolutely terrifying in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, like in every scene, he just makes you uncomfortable. Brolin's great as always, and there's a guy named Garrett Dillahunt. Are you familiar with him? I'm not. He I'm not played sure Wendell is. the deputy. He okay. was Tommy Lee Jones's okay. deputy. Yep. He's been in a million things. He's okay. always amazing in like whatever he's in. Sometimes he's a main character. Sometimes he's a very minor character. He played two different characters in the show Deadwood. He plays Jack McCall 
and he comes back the next season as a completely different character uh, named Francis Wolcott, who is like an assistant for George Hurst. Two totally different characters, totally different. Everything about them is different other than they're played by the same exact guy in the same exact TV series. And like, that's a that's how good of an actor that guy is, I think, in real life. But like, yeah. he uh, he had a small part in that and he immediately jumped out at me. And uh, and he's great in it <laughs> as like the uh, befuddled deputy who gets overly excited every time oh, yeah. he sees something. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the only the only other thing that I would want to mention is there are some pivotal scenes where Shigur finally catches up to Llewellyn Moss and they kind of have like a shootout through the street as Llewellyn is scrambling to get away from him. And he is just relentlessly coming after him and not stopping, you know, and it's, it's just, it really keeps you on the edge of your seat. I really love it. Yeah. That was, that was, that was good. That That was good. Okay. So yeah, I would agree with you. That's, that's an A. Personally, I may have given it a B. I don't, I can't really justify that other than maybe the, the ending and how uncomfortable it made me feel, but I think that was the point. So I won't argue an A. (laughs) Um, So my final pick and I am firmly putting this one in the S tier because it is one of my all-time favorite movies ever is The Big Lebowski. As you talked about earlier, um, the dream sequence, uh, though not my favorite part, was not enough to bring it down to an A for me. 1998, as you mentioned, Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, small appearances from uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, even Tara Reid is decent in this. The yeah. aforementioned Peter Stormare, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Julianne Moore. Like the cast in this is, is reasonably star studded. To say that it's cast perfectly is an understatement. Like yeah. every character, every line, every setting, everything in this movie is like executed perfectly. Sam Elliott as the, the narrator is perfect. As I said, even like even Tara Reid is perfect in in her role, you know, and she's like usually terrible in everything. Oh yeah, right. and and she's perfect in it, right? Like Philip Seymour Hoffman plays, you know, just this like butler that you see a few times, and he somehow there's one scene where he laughs and he makes his nostrils flare, and I can't not see it, and it's like, how does he do that? It's perfect. I don't know, but essentially, uh, my my synopsis of it was a slacker gets sucked into a scheme of increasing complexity in early '90s LA. Though all he wanted was a new rug, <laughs> and the impetus for the whole story is at the very beginning, these thugs show up at his apartment and beat him up and pee on his rug because they mistake him for someone of the same exact name. His name is Jeff Lebowski. They mistake him for a different Jeff Lebowski, who is this super rich guy whose wife owes money all over town, who whose wife owes their employer money. And so like they're trying to shake that guy down, but they show up at his apartment, beat him up, pee on his rug, and then slowly realize that they got the wrong person and they just leave. And then John Goodman's character convinces him at the bowling alley that the real Jeff Lebowski, the rich one, should be held liable for his rug that they peed on. <laughs> and so he should right. go seek restitution from him. And so he shows up and then like shenanigans is, ensue as he gets pulled into this ever confusing, thickening plot where his wife's been kidnapped, but has she been kidnapped, etc. And it ends up just sort of serving as the plot almost just serves as like connective tissue for all these absurd characters to do absurd things and 
it's, I mean, I, I talked about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where like, it's the kind of movie where the more you watch it, the more little things you pick up. This to me is that, but more so than probably any movie I've ever seen in my life. Like I've seen this movie probably 5,000 times and I'll still catch little nuances in the way an actor delivers a line or a phrase that they say that I haven't caught before. And I'm like, holy crap, that's brilliant. And this is another one. I mentioned seeing a couple of these movies in the theaters. So the only trivia I'll give to this one is that uh, as as some of my friends and, and certainly my wife, your sister, has heard me boast seven million times, I saw this movie in the theaters and I might be the only person I've ever met besides my dad who saw this movie in the theater. I saw this when it came out. Uh, me and my dad went to it and I told everyone I knew how funny this movie was and how good this movie was and said, you've got to go see this movie. It's brilliant. And every single person without exception went, meh, I don't know. It looks kind of dumb. I, I'm not that interested. Fast forward, we're in college, probably four or five years later, every single one of those people, hey, dude, have you seen The Big Lebowski? It's so oh, good. God. You got to go see it. And I'm like, dude, I've been telling you for four years to watch this movie. And yeah. you have told me over and over again, meh, doesn't look that good. So anyway, this is this is one of like, you know, I'm I'm usually not on the cutting edge of anything. You know, I'm one of those people who gets a new cell phone like once uh you know my my old one stops working and then I go and get the second newest one that's on sale, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But this I was on the cutting edge of. I told everybody I knew how funny this movie was. The only other thing that I could make a similar claim about it was uh uh similarly Office Space. I saw that in the mo in the theaters, told everyone I knew how funny it was. Nobody on earth believed me for years. And now both both of those movies are considered, you know, two of the biggest cult classics in history. In both cases, like I would go to family video on a weekly basis or not, if not twice a week, waiting for them to start selling their VHS copies, you know, like once a new release isn't so new anymore, they would put them out for sale for like five or 10 bucks. I showed right. up twice a week after these movies were released on video, waiting for the price to drop because I was, you know, a broke teenager just so I could buy them and have them on VHS immediately. And again, this was before anybody else was finally watching it. So I will brag till the end of time that I saw this in the theaters. But irrelevant of that, uh, this remains one of my favorite movies of all time. I tried to capture like a highlight, like my favorite part. And it's so hard with this movie because as I said, I feel like every single moment is perfect. But there is one, I tried to think of it in the context of regardless of the fact that I've seen this movie a thousand times, if I were watching it, even just like watching it in the background, and somebody walked in the room and was making noise or asked me a question or something. Is there any scene that despite having seen the movie a thousand times, I would actually pause as to not miss it? Whereas most of the movie it's like, yeah, I could recite it without even watching it, right? Like I don't yeah. need to pause it and see it. And the one scene that I could think of that I would pause, there's a scene where the dude goes to Julianne Moore's house and David Thewlis is sitting in a chair. And if you don't know who... David Thewlis is, Google him, you'll be like, oh, that guy. He's one of those people who's in a million things, but he's she's not there and he's sitting in a in a chair and they they have this like little casual banter back and forth. And David Thewlis plays a character named Knox Harrington, the video artist. And he comes off as like the weirdest, like not hipster, but like beat artist weirdo, you know, like he's got a pencil thin mustache and this high pitched laugh and he doesn't open his mouth 
<laughs> and this weird British accent. And that entire scene just tickles me to no end. Like every line through that scene. Um, and he's, he keeps saying as as he keep like no matter what happens as he the David Thewlis character is reading this magazine, he keeps giggling super loud and super high pitched. <laughs> and, and the dude keeps stopping and goes, who the fuck is this guy? Who is this guy? <laughs> and she's just like, it's Knox Harrington, the video artist. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, and it, he says it more than once in the scene. Like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> anyway, I, I just I love that scene. It's almost irrelevant to the plot. I mean, I guess, yeah, honestly, I think you could take that scene out of the movie and it wouldn't change the trajectory. But it like it's my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's just perfect <laughs> when he says, "Oh, I'm I'm a friend of Maud's." He says, "Ah, oh, the one with the cleft asshole." <laughs> <laughs> It's just bizarre. It's just yeah. so bizarre. Anyway, so yeah, one of my favorite movies of all time, S tier, S plus. I love it. If I, uh, it, it'd be in my top five desert island movies for sure. I can't see it enough. Also introduced me to In and Out Burger, which I didn't realize was a real place till like ten years later. I, mean, I thought they just made it up for the movie because it sounded made up. <laughs> it, do, I mean, it does sound made up. Honestly, it sounds like a totally made up place. And if you're not from the Southwest at that time in 1998, you would have never heard of it before. So. Anyway, right. that's my last one. What's what's your last one? It's probably an S tier, and I have a good guess, but I'll let you go ahead. So my choice is the one Dan previously discussed, 1996's Fargo, which is a another crime thriller starring Francis McDormand and William H. Macy, among others. And actually, it's probably going to be covered on an episode of this podcast at some point just because. So since Dan did already kind of talk a little bit about the plot and things like that, I do want to point out that the beginning of this movie, it really set the tone for me when I first watched it. And I it really made me look at the movie differently. And it comes up and it has this pre-movie disclaimer that says, this is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. And that is, I was like, holy shit, this is, like, as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, this is all fucking real? Like, this actually happened? And then, of course, I found out that this disclaimer is complete and utter bullshit, and it actually never really happened, like, not Truly, I mean, it's, it was based on some things that happened, but it was not like the story itself actually occurred as was presented in the movie. But I just, I, I watched this movie and I fucking love it. I mean, it's just, it's got so many great moments and the, the whole Minnesota accents thing is fucking amazing. The score, I would have to say that was one Dan didn't mention either was uh, the, the scoring, just the overall sound it's this i think it's a slow violin sound that kind of connects this movie kind of bonds it together and it, it really does an amazing job just setting the tone for the movie and there are some pretty intense scenes in fargo most notably i would say of all of the scenes that i can think of i would say the standout scene for me has to be where steve buscemi and gear or uh Peter Stormare's character, Gear Grimsrud, he like they get pulled over and they're in this this stolen car that Steve Buscemi forgot to put tags on or tabs or whatever you want to call them. And so they get pulled over for that. And basically 
Steve Buscemi tries to bribe the cop when he comes up to the uh, the window. And basically, the cop doesn't like that he's being offered a bribe. And so he decides he's going to poke around a little more. And Peter Stormare's character just straight up grabs him and pulls him down into view and shoots him in the head. And then a car drives by and witnesses what has happened there. And then they have to go and chase after them and kill them. And I mean, just the whole thing. It's a very tense, probably five minutes or so, I would say. But it's, it's a very well done sequence. And then you get to see Marge Gunderson, Francis McDormand's character, kind of piece together what happened at the crash site where everything happened the day after. And I, I just, I absolutely love the way this movie just really has a great way of storytelling. I mean, it, it's got, like Dan was talking about with the meeting with Marge and her old high school friend who he just keeps saying she's such a super lady. And <laughs> it's just, and it's just like, it's so funny. Um, and I mean, there's, there are like, so one tidbit I had about this movie that I, I felt was very interesting, but not at all surprising is that, Gear Grimsrud has 18 lines of dialogue, who is Peter Stormare's character, in this entire movie and never says more than a complete sentence at a time. By comparison, Carl Showalter, Steve Buscemi's character, has over 150 lines of dialogue. And these guys are together <laughs> talking all the time. And Gear just never has shit to say at all. Like, and Carl is just always ranting about something or how he's pissed about something or I, I just, I love it. it. It's like the perfect quintessential Steve Buscemi role. It really is. <laughs> yeah. He's perfect. And yeah. And the other, the other thing I wanted to mention was I love, I think the guy's name is Harv Presnell that plays William H. Macy, Jerry's uh, father-in-law. And just there's, there are a couple of scenes together. The overall level of dislike that is conveyed that like the father-in-law hates Jerry so fucking much. And he just has <laughs> no respect for him at all. Like he just, he can't stand him. He makes comments all the time. Like basically, you know, like Jerry wants to offer him this, this real estate deal. And the father-in-law doesn't really believe that it's worthwhile until he talks to somebody else about it. And they say it could be a really good deal. And it's, I mean, the whole thing, just the way it plays out is just fucking amazing. <laughs> but yes, that's that's my S tier grade for my collection is I, I love Fargo. It's the perfect runtime. It's like 95 minutes and it's it crams so much into that. And you just get a lot of great memorable moments. And I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. As, as I mentioned, uh, I think when I talked about it, I had it as an A, but. I felt weird even putting it as an A. I think I just felt a little weirder about having two S tier. So I, I have uh, I have no argument at all that it shouldn't be S tier. <laughs> it really yeah. is like sort of a perfect movie. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, and I and it's yeah, I think see, it also introduced to me, or at least it, it it's the first time I recall being aware of the concept of a dark comedy. Like that right. as like a phrase, a dark comedy where like you wouldn't bill it as just, oh, it's a comedy, but it's definitely not funny by accident, you know? No, right. And the and funny parts are really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I love just like the, it's like, it's very serious subject matter. But yes. The Minnesotan accents like <laughs> kind of take it down to where it's a more manageable yes. 
seriousness, you know? The so it's accents like, are so brilliant when she's questioning oh, that one guy who's shoving, shoveling his walk <laughs> or whatever. And she's like, you know, can you describe it? And he says, oh, it's just sort of funny looking. She's like, oh, like how so? Oh, no sort of way. Just sort of funny looking. <laughs> he's love- talking about Steve Buscemi, who is sort of funny looking. <laughs> right. He is. And so the, that's the moment I love best with the accents is when. Um, so it's it's Jerry and Gene's son. I can't remember what his name is, but he's pissed about like basically they tell him that he can't do something because his grades are too bad or something like that. And he says, well, fuck, or, you know, something like that. And William H. Macy just shoots, hey, watch that language there. And it's like, <laughs> just sounds so funny. Like, I, I can't even imagine like yeah. hearing that and not laughing. Right. But Which yeah. is funny because uh, to, to other people, we almost sound like that. Like, you know, I live oh, yeah. not, not in the Midwest anymore. And every now and then it really comes out, especially like if, if I go get a pop. Like it's inevitable if I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm grabbing a pop or whatever. Some somebody in earshot will go pop. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, yeah, that's. I mean, that's yeah, very fair. I mean, yeah, I I especially got a good dose of it when I was in the UP when (laughs) I lived there for a while. They they've got their fun accents. Yeah. So okay, so that's we actually, uh, despite it being a relatively small list overall compared to the likes of people like Steven Spielberg and such. We did manage to hit 10 different movies and there are still a lot of movies that we didn't hit at all that like, you know, are are worth by some of the ones we didn't hit. (laughs) Like I I had a, a short list of, you know, kind of, also mentions, I wouldn't say honorable mentions, but also mentions because uh, one of these I haven't even seen before. Um, But like Raising Arizona is a pretty big one. Neither of us had that on our list to talk about. Uh, I have seen it. I do think it's a good movie, but without watching it again, I didn't have a whole lot more to say than uh, I blame this movie for Nick Cage, which to be fair, Nick Cage is pretty good in it. And as I was actually, it, it got me to thinking about Nick Cage and I, I pulled up his, dis, his, his discography, his filmography, and was kind of going through it. Like at what point did I decide that I hated Nick Cage? And because like I can, I can count several instances where he's really not bad. And I think the problem is that after he did The Rock with Sean Connery, which was a mm. really good movie, in my opinion, yeah, someone in Hollywood decided that he was a leading action hero. And right. there's like this span of a decade where all he does is he's the headliner for action movies and or City of Angels. And it's like at the end of 10 years – that like next 10 year span, how did he keep getting work kind of thing? It was like, I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to go off on a whole Nick Cage rant, right? but Raising Arizona, he's he's pretty good. If you've ever seen the movie Trapped in Paradise, I won't tell you it's a good movie, but I like it. <laughs> and he's in oh, that. Oh God, I tried to watch Dana that Dana Carvey like, and John Lovitz. Yeah. <laughs> I love I that I tried movie. watching that one. I couldn't do it. I couldn't oh. get there. It was too yeah, much like for I me. said I, I won't go as far as to say that's a good movie but I really enjoy that movie right. um uh and then you know there's like more recent movies like uh Lord of War where it's really good and and he's not bad in it yeah or at least I thought it was pretty good there's kick-ass which is a movie I absolutely adore that he's actually I think excellent in I heard, um, I heard his, he's like- his way of acting, like he he decided he was going to try and emulate Adam West's Batman. Yes, but in a cartoonishly weird way. Yes, very and it weird. Actually, works in it because he's he isn't Nick Cage in it. If that makes any sense, no. He go right. he he's totally bizarre and goofy, and it 
in my opinion, really works for that. And then like, you know, the National Treasure movies were kind of okay in spite of him. But uh, so yeah, Raising Arizona, that's a a really long rambling way to say I didn't uh, include it in my list, but uh, it's worth saying if you haven't seen it. Burn After Reading, I had actually mentioned, but then you ended up talking about it anyway. Uh, And then there's a movie starring John Turturro called Barton Fink. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have have not seen it, but it's been on my to watch list for ages. And I really need to get around to seeing that movie. It's, uh, I would definitely say it's worth checking out. It's not one of my favorites, mm-hmm. but it's, it's definitely an interesting movie. It's a, a very, that's it's what different. That's definitely the, the impression that I get. And I tend to really enjoy John Turturro whenever I see him and stuff. So I figured it couldn't be that bad. Right. So it'd yeah. be worth seeing. Yeah, definitely. If you see it, I would say if it's one of those ones, if you see it on streaming, check it out. I wouldn't make it like a special point to like. Pay yeah, for that, it. that's the problem. I don't think it was streaming anywhere. No, I'm going to have okay. to pay four bucks to see it. Darn it all. Yeah. Well, Did you have any also mentions? The only one I wanted to mention that I was when we first started talking about doing this kind of uh, offshoot type show where we would rank these movies and we talked about the Coen brothers. I got legitimately terrified that I was going to have to watch every Coen brothers movie. And there were so, like, there was one in particular that is called the man who wasn't there. Have you ever seen that one? No, I haven't. But that was one of the ones that you very specifically mentioned. You did not want to watch again. Yes. Cause it, I mean, like, you know, I won't say it was like a, a God awful movie or unwatchable. Right. It was just, I didn't really, I think that, Anybody other than Billy Bob Thornton could have been a good choice for the lead role and made it a little more compelling of a story. But it was just I mean, like I had it was one that I had seen probably like a year ago and I had been putting off watching it. And essentially, when I finally did watch it, it was just like, meh. And then, you know, when it came to this episode, I was like, I was like thinking about it. I'm like, good God, I don't remember anything about that movie other than disliking it pretty severely. And that is all I have to go on. And that was the thing is it's like, I was, I was thinking to myself, Oh God, I'm going to have to rewatch this mediocre ass movie for this podcast. But no, this worked out pretty yeah. well where we just picked what we wanted to watch. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think uh, five or six each works. We might even need to trim it back to five each next time because, uh, we, we talked about 10 movies a little bit more in depth than I had intended. But like I said earlier, we're both very long winded. And so we're at like well over two hours at this point. When when you were talking about um, the original idea, you were like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll spend like three minutes on each movie. And then, uh, you know, it'll it'll be like a, a tight 36. And I was like, I don't I don't see that happening at all. <laughs> like, I don't know how that's going to work out. <laughs> three minutes. What? Yeah. I've never only spent three minutes talking about anything in my life. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so I yeah. mean, I, I did look, and it doesn't look like they they have a whole lot like announced upcoming. There's the no. J- Jerry Lee Lewis biopic that is apparently only Ethan Cohen, and strangely enough, I, I saw a couple of uh, headlines. I didn't read them because I wasn't that interested, but uh, that seemed to insinuate the Cohen brothers may have like like declared Gone that on. they're 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 going their separate ways and going to oh. do solo stuff, or maybe they. Uh, I don't know if that means they've like broken up like the way a band breaks up, but I think they're both doing, uh, it sounds like they're both doing solo projects at the moment. Maybe they just both wanted to go off and see if they could do things by themselves. Anyway, I I found that kind of interesting. Hopefully we get more Coen Brothers collaborations in the future because I, for one, tend to really enjoy them. 
Yeah, I mean, at the very least, I would say even their worst movies are like watchable for the most part. Aside from, I think you made the the ballad of Buster Scruggs kind of sound like it was not super watchable. But yeah, I would like I said, I would watch the first fifteen minutes and then just find yeah, something else to right. do. Well, yeah, I think I like this format. I think that we can we won't have a lot of things in every episode. You know, we won't have the giant intro. We won't have a lot of things that that will come with it. So I think realistically and feeling it out, you know, being at about two hours, 18 minutes right now of recording time is longer than I think I've ever recorded a podcast for, which is really saying something. So I'm glad we at least got some healthy discussion out of it. And we had we had some some solid picks and some good good discussion. So, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll have to uh, think of what we might do next at popped into my head more than once as we were talking that uh, maybe Josh Brolin would be a good one to do next. Cause he might be. <laughs> he certainly, I mean, we did talk about Tom Hardy. Oh, we did. The, we did. And, yeah. and for, uh, yeah, we both have a fondness for Tom Hardy. That's for sure. Yes. Um, this, a, a deep, a deep, deep man crush love yes. on my part, at least. <laughs> yes. I can't speak yes, for both He's of wonderful. Us, but, he's wonderful. Yes. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe we, uh, if we want to do another one, we make it a, a bonus series or something. It'll be like Brandon at random retrospective with Dan or something like that. Yeah. Some, I mean, <laughs> you know, we can, we can kind of name yeah. it whatever, yeah. you know, whatever we it's, feel like. As long as it doesn't require another RSS feed or a new banner. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I am all, I can customize a single episode artwork to you yeah. know look a little different, but yeah. So. Yeah, I think I definitely want to do this again, for sure. It was a lot of fun. I had a good time. It was. Good stuff. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to the rest of your day. Uh, If it's still snowing out there, you might have to go uh, get the blower back out. I'll go see if there's uh, still enough snow uh, that I can even see with the naked eye. Probably not. Um, I bet it's still wet and miserable out there, though. Yeah. I don't plan on going outside today. That's for sure. All right. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Dan. And... Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.